If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to episode 205 of What Most People Think. And it feels like a lot has happened within the week. I mean, interest rates have gone up, inflation is fucked again. Um, but more importantly, I went to the cricket uh, on Tuesday. I was actually at the ground and I would say, I mean, it was it was a privilege to be there. It wasn't a privilege to lose, but it, being at the ground, it got so tense at one point that I had to switch to a lower strength lager. I was, I was on the 5%. And then I thought, no, you've got to think here, Norcott, you've got to think game management. And so I just dropped it down a level to a 4%. And then I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit I was on lemonade for the final hour because it was uh, I didn't want to miss every, anything. And uh, joining me uh, once again, and very welcome return to the podcast, is, is Simon Evans. Simon, are you... I, bet, I think people might just presume you're a cricket man. I don't even know whether you've got any time for cricket at all. Well, I've got time for it in principle. Um, I prefer it probably um, it more in theory than in practice. I don't go and see the matches live. I, I have been invited a couple of times. Funny enough, I was at the Oval on the day the Queen died, um, mm. waiting to watch South Africa play, and um, and it was pouring with rain, and it turned out the rain had been commissioned, obviously, in honour of the Queen's passing, you yeah. know, and that, that was uh, all very sombre. But I remember thinking, um, in a way, I almost felt like a uh, like I'd been I'd been given a pass. <laughs> I was there with my uh, my agent who, and a couple of other of his acts, you know. And it was a sort of um, I think it was a sort of nice gesture on his part, you know, to bring in some of his acts, some of his his lads, you know, up to the cricket. But the truth is, I don't really follow it very closely, and I always feel I'm I'm slightly sort of exposed, you know, to uh, to ask a foolish question or or missing the significance of some event or whatever, you know. It feels to me like one of those games where there's an awful lot of backstory, you know. You can't really just enjoy the action per se, you know what I mean? Yeah, I would say it's almost all backstory, really. If you look at the ashes, I mean, that's what makes it so rich is because it happens over such a long period of time. That's why I guess the punditry for cricket is the most tangential that you'll ever hear. You could sort of dip out for a minute and then you'll hear like Phil Tufnell talking about tempura prawns and 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 yeah. just because time, time, but time allows for a lot of things. It allows for silly stories, but it also allows for resentment and grudges and rivalries to really uh, <laughs> marinate yeah. over the centuries. I agree with that. I mean, I, I enjoy reading about it. I enjoy a well-written match. I've sometimes thought there are certain sports, probably cricket is one, baseball, I think, for the Americans, obviously similarities there as well. Boxing maybe as well. A well-written mm. match report can be actually more in, more enjoyable and satisfying than, than watching the game. Watching it live is very difficult because it's a long way away. You can't really see the, uh, you know, the nuance. Like, the you know, w- watching it on the yeah. telly now, the amount of graphics they have to demonstrate to you whether the bowler has managed to keep to his line and length or whether the whether that was going to hit the off stump or whatever, you know, the, these things really do enhance it. So if I am going to watch it, I kind of prefer to watch it at home, really, and see yeah, it's, if it's, that sort of augmented reality version of it is is more interesting. But, yeah, I totally get the... Uh, the the uh, the charm of test match special tinkering away in the background while you know while while you're uh, just going about your daily life well i mean you know cricket is supposed to be this force for good but there has been this report that uh, came out today we're recording this uh, on tuesday the 27th 7th of june so there's this report that's come out that said that uh, cricket is institutionally structurally and, and 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 there's a lot of words for those kind of things and and literally and and indubitably racist homophobic and all the isms right which we will discuss we will discuss later but i i, I you know i don't know about all those things because i'm not intuitively involved in the game enough but what i did want to focus in uh, was the criticisms that female cricketers weren't paid as much as male cricketers and just just have a little bet with yourself just to see which way i'll go on that on <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, you know, whether or not uh, equal pay is possible uh, in sport um the other thing that happened this week, uh, which we will be discussing, is that uh, I was deputising for Hugo Rifkin on Times Radio and the Russia 
story broke on Saturday. So I'd done a work in progress in Stockport the night before. So I'd driven five hours up there. Uh, I'd driven two and a half hours back to a hotel in Northampton, got up early, got in, and they're like, there's breaking news. I was like, oh, fuck. Look, I know that obviously I'm not the central feature of this. I know the people of Russia are probably deeply unsettled, but I, I could have done without this, you know? I could have done without <laughs> what, look, what looked at that point like it might be a, 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 a medium-level coup. So we... Wait, did you did you get excited about that on Saturday? But I always think like I always quite enjoy telling my wife when there's breaking news because we always get we all get to feel like correspondents at that point, don't we? Yeah, I mean, my wife was at Glastonbury when that was happening, and um, there was a sort of an element of excitement, and and is very um, it's is morally corrupt, isn't it, to to feel excitement? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that people's lives are. Going. I mean, I suppose there was a possibility that a coup might have um, brought the war to a, an earlier resolution, but I don't think anyone who then even like read into the second paragraph could have had a great deal of optimism on that front. It didn't seem like no. it was, you know, this was this was a coup by peaceniks. You know, this this was a coup by people who felt Putin hadn't been going in hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the problem. Was the moment you saw the guy's face, Prigozhin's uh, face, and and even the way I just said his name there reminded me that across the three hours that I was on Times Radio, the the evolution of my pronunciation of these words, it, I started sounding like I was taking the piss because I was just so desperate not to get them wrong. So yeah. there was there was one place that they so they took Rostov and then they went on to Voronezh, but the first time I said it, I basically almost said Veronica, I think, and then so at, at the long. <laughs> The longer I was on air, I was just really putting some extra stink on it, going, because that's what happens when new stories break. We've got to learn new words, and we've got, and there'll always be someone that will just pronounce something slightly differently. And a good example is, once upon a time, it was Kiev. It was Kiev for fucking ages. And then within about a day, it was, no, it's actually Kiev. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that was the one. It's a single syllable that people were pronouncing wrongly. <laughs> that's quite, a, yeah, that's quite a low bar, isn't it? No, I agree with you, and I think there was an awful lot of people, myself included, who felt we ought to have been slightly better informed. I mean, I wonder how many people consulted the Wikipedia page for the Wagner Group just to see whether it was a Wagner Group or a Wagner Group or a Wagner, or, we, or whether there was something <laughs> hidden in there. You know, we all knew vaguely that it, that Putin had got these like uh, soldiers of fortune, you know, uh, these... I yeah. mean, it's, it's been quite interesting just watching that, how the narrative has changed over the course of the last 18 months. And I don't think I'd seen this actually discussed in these terms, you know, when troops were massing on the border in, what was it, February of 2022, something like that. That essentially now people discuss um, Russian politics and arguably like Ukrainian as well, as it's really more better understood as organised crime. It, it, Putin is better understood as a sort of Al Capone type figure uh, mm. or Lucky Luciano, you know, rather than anything that could be mapped onto our conventional view of a statesman, you know, and what this might mean in terms of a, if it were a coup in, uh, even in the Middle East, you know. And, I mean, um, even mercenary evidently means something quite different um, in terms of the, this fighting force. Because the moment I heard mercenary... I was thinking first expendables, then I was thinking Stallone, Stavum, yeah. Dolph Lundgren. And so that's a little bit more of a formal working relationship than yeah. that. The thing is, I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's quite easy to take a sort of high moral tone on that, but the British haven't been above using mercenaries in the past. And certainly, in, you know, mm. the scramble for Africa, I think largely done by uh, privateers of one kind or another. You could say Francis Drake, who essentially established the British Empire on a sound financial footing, was, was in that kind of category. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not. I don't think it's that unusual. But but what is unusual is the extent to which Putin is basically plays them off against one another, rather than sort of have to have occasionally grubby his hands by dealing with one. It's rather that is basically what he is. He's like the the central. You know, he's the kingpin of a of a large number of different organised crime syndicates. And it's also quite interesting. You know, hearing him discussed as a net caterer. I mean, <laughs> people always yeah, like yeah. zero in on on the one slightly inappropriate. They want to picture him as Stephen Seagal bursting out out of the kitchen with his fistful of, <laughs> you know, chef's knives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, food entrepreneur wasn't... It was a very hard thing to accommodate in the in the thinking of a guy 
that I just what is he, and then I wanted to know more about the food thing. I was like, did he did he set up a like successful franchise? I mean, we're talking like Franco Manca, i.e. like a trendy hipster pizza place that ended up with several outlets. Are we talking nationwide? I mean, I think it'd be we, more like a Deliveroo sort of uh, tier, you know, where, where you, you operate <laughs> a large scale logistics uh, operation. You can quite easily then uh, that, that only takes a little tweak before that becomes an invasive force. You wouldn't. I mean, you, if he if he delivered the wrong stuff, you'd hesitate to yeah. bring him and pull him back, wouldn't you? Go, yeah. actually, mate, we we ordered two lambunas, not a, a, a lambuna <laughs> and, <laughs> and a biryani, and they go. You know what? Actually, I think I prefer biryani. Um, and I just I've seen the size of the guy on the moped uh, <laughs> <laughs> with compliments of the Wagner Group. Uh, we're just going to welcome um, some new patrons here, uh, board member level. Uh, the, there is an important communication coming up for people at board member level. So if you are a patron, member, you can go on there. Uh, you can get loads of content, including uh, my last free live comedy specials, which is what you have to call them now. Um, but there, if you upgrade to 20 quid a month, um, I will be coming to you with a question, an important question about how the podcast uh, and what, what the podcast is is about is not nothing big is going to change is going to stay anyway look I, I'm going to be coming to you soon so just stand by your beds uh, Martin Green has recently upgraded uh, to the board so welcome Martin we'll get you a coffee a croissant and some freshly squeezed orange juice because that as we all know from succession is the main benefit of being in a boardroom uh, we've got Matty M Matty M is a uh, is a guy who hasn't had his shout out yet Simon so I feel like we have to be particularly brutal about his name but because we don't know his surname it's pretty I think Matty M maybe sounds like a hard house DJ from the early 90s you know one of those <laughs> yeah. Reminds me of my, 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 my daughter's name is Matilda. She's known as Matty to her friend, so that's who I'm picturing now. But <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was the abbreviation of... of uh... I used to prefer Tilda, but apparently that is um, too diminutive. Matty sounds cool. It's weird, though, when your kids go to school and they get different nicknames from the ones that you regard them as being, you know. Teachers yeah. phone me up about my son and go... Um, just to let you know, Ed has uh, has taken a bit of a knock on the rug in the rugby today, and I'm like, Ed, who's Ed? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have done Edward, who I know as Bear. I've never called him Ed. I mean, it just seems that it feels like it's a totally different person. You know, it's a very anyway. grown up thing to call your kid, wouldn't it be? Ed, yeah, Ed. Yeah. Um, yeah. That is, I mean, maybe I've said Matty. I've presumed wrongly. I've presumed the gender there could easily be uh, could easily be uh, Matilda. And I guess that's that Matty for Matilda would be more popular at the moment because he's got a nice sort of androgynous vibe about it, right? Yeah, that's probably what it is, isn't it? Wanting to take the uh, the element of gender out of the whole equation. <laughs> but I but I always thought, but then Tilda isn't Tilda a brand of rice, rice as well? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I think it's that. I don't know whether it's that or whether that's what it's named after. It's a sort of uh, what do they call it? Like a like an accent, you know, like a little squiggle yeah. that goes over an N or something. Is it something like that in the um, there, there's some language where a tilde is like a uh, like an acute and a grave and all those sort of things. It's one of those as well. See, this is why we have David Domain, the yeah. expert of the show, to pick up on these things. He'll no doubt be in touch. And it did. And the part of the reason I wasn't fully across that was like I was trying to think of who Tilda Swinton. If Tilda Swinton married Declan Rice. <laughs> Tilda Swinton Rice. There you go. There's a brand ready to go. Uh, we just mentioned David um, Domain, the uh, Domain talking point there. First up, he said it was great to hear Dominic Frisby uh, back on the show last week, um, and he he did a brilliant song at the end of it. So even ah. if you even if you dip in and dip out of my podcast, I would urge anybody to download that and listen to the last ten minutes. It was uh, fantastic. We mentioned uh, he spoke about the devaluation of the pound. He speaks about little else, Simon. You know, you know, Dom. He's always talking about the devaluation he's, of the pound. Um, he's been a sort of uh, a currency bear for some time, hasn't he? Uh, probably since I've known him, really. <laughs> he's probably years. he's probably the only person on the comedy circuit because the comedy circuit has all sorts of people, right? Really does it. It's a great cross section of society, but he's probably the only one that knows anything about money. That and that says it all, really. Yeah, he does. But he he maybe um, uh, he does know a lot about money, and he knows a lot about gold, and he knows a lot about mining and things like that, precious metals. I don't know whether it's done him an enormous amount of good. as we know about working as an economist in any way it's it's just about making predictions that people are interested in none of us well the thing about currency and gold and all that stuff is and whether it's against property and and whether the chinese are hoarding gold because they're going to launch an alternative sort of default world you know uh reserve currency Mm. and so on is it shades into not exact conspiracy theories but it's a kind of 
you get into a kind of narrative about the world that makes sense within itself, but doesn't necessarily play out in the events you see, you know. Essentially, I mean, America has been, like, bankrupt by a conventional, you know, uh, measure for, for decades, you know. It's it, it, the size of its national debt, but it's that classic phrase of, of um, John Maynard Keynes, the market can remain insane for longer than you can remain solvent. And uh, <laughs> and that, that's, the, that's the danger of forming coherent theories about it all. Uh, what uh, David Domain also got back about something I discussed about you, you know sort of when the Brits kind of tagged on London to London Derry I think that's how it, how it happened and I without wishing to take a side in the debate uh, sort of said there was a bit route one you know just sticking London uh, on the front of something he he said and I didn't know this is that the way that Northern Ireland or Northern Ireland folk get around the name of its second city is by calling it Stroke City I didn't know this yeah. uh, this comes from the the PC of, of writing it London Derry slash Derry. Uh, the name was popularised by a BBC foil presenter called Jerry Anderson. I mean, there's a very Northern Irish name, Jerry Anderson. You can almost practice your accent, Jerry Anderson. Um, I think I know Jerry City. Anderson. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've heard that. Yeah, it's a very clever approach to it. Absolutely, you know. And uh, that's. I mean, that's it does that make it sound like like a, a risk on your medical insurance quote as well? Stroke City. <laughs> Where do you live? Stroke City. What, like in a figurative sense? <laughs> Most people think. All right, we're going to do a, a thank you and a fuck you. I've got one of each then, and then we'll come on to Simon. Uh, so they're both to do with Glastonbury. Uh, my thank you is to the Lewis Capaldi moment. Now, I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, it's worth having a look. He's, 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 he's struggling with his mental health at the moment, and he's had a resurgence in his Tourette's and his tics and, and stuff, which is obviously not ideal for performing. And he got to the end, at the end of his set and he was singing uh, one of his most well-known songs. And he was struggling to get through the song and the crowd, um, he asked them to help out where possible. And they really showed up. And it was really touching, man. It really, it really got me somewhere deep down because... I suppose as performers, like you go on stage sometimes where you're struggling and you just you just don't feel like you can ever, you know, take your foot off the gas. And, that you know, if you show what's going on or, or how you really feel that everyone will reject you and you'll never work again. I suppose that's the catastrophic fear. And here was a younger bloke um, going out there and, and, and just being, being, you know, one, he still did the gig. He didn't back out of it, which I thought was, uh, you know, positive. And then I thought when it comes to mental health, sometimes the discussion is often you get a lot of celebrities who, when, it, when, when the sort of storm has passed, they'll appear and tell you their hero story of their mental health. You know, three years ago, I was in the worst place in my life and I battled through it. So they'll, t- they'll never actually communicate while they're in the shit. That's what, that's what I'm saying. So I kind of thought it was genuinely, like people talk about a progressive move, to actually just go out there, not cancel the gig and, and, and to, to show people where he was at. I, I must say, I found that a bit inspiring. I know that I'll, I'll be losing listeners here for talking in such a soft and fucking... So feel free to shit on it from a great height, what I'm saying here, but... It was, a, it was a genuinely, it was genuinely moving thing. I mean, I, I don't want to shit on it from a great height, but it's not quite how I feel about it, to be honest. I, I, I am glad mm-hmm. he went ahead with it, and um, and I, obviously, I don't, you know, I don't have anything to hold any kind of like moral failing in the fact that he's having these issues. They're clearly very genuine, but I, it is starting to make me feel a bit uncomfortable. It's not like I followed his career very closely, but this seems to be quite a regular occurrence. He doesn't look very happy. He doesn't look very well. I know a bloke um, that I talked to on on DMs on Twitter who had, who watched a documentary and was talking about it and just says bloke has been sort of like elevated from like club circuit you know to to megastardom mm. very very quickly and he just is is looking like he just doesn't have the mental strength to cope with the with the badge that comes with that and there is a point I mean obviously he's got a huge fan base and they love it it's not exactly my kind of music but it's not I'm not kind of oblivious to why he's popular but uh, you know it I don't know it's not quite like a like he's a child prodigy or something he's just got there's something charming about it I guess but I don't know it makes me feel very uncomfortable like this he's still a bit of a performing I don't know like that are they going to just kind of expect him right get up there Lewis we'll carry you if we need to you know I don't know one day what if they don't you know what if he has his Ceausescu mm. moment what if he what if he jumps off the off the ledge and they, they've wandered away with the blanket and forgot about him you know and mm. um I it makes me feel that industry is actually a bit toxic but is apt to be somewhat self-congratulatory about itself and its ability to cope with people who have mental health issues now 
I might be completely misreading it. I don't know. Maybe everyone loves him for coming out there and doing that and, and being there. And they're like, don't worry, we, you don't have to be able to sing as long as you can stand there and, and we can sing your songs. Well, I don't, I don't think he should make a habit of it. That shouldn't be like his thing. But it now, sounds like he, he has been. Yeah. I don't know. I, I could be wrong, but this is mm. what I'm hearing. But I, I think and, um, just... Well, I hope that he, you know, it's obvious that he needs to go away and have some time to himself. You know, he's mm. obviously struggling. So that's the next thing that needs to happen. But yeah, there's certainly a part of you that wonders about the pressures put on people in the music industry. Yeah. And, and, you know, I guess you do think that as a performer, like, well, if I don't do this, will I lose everything? That's always like, even like down at our level, you, I cancel a gig, will they ever book me again? So yeah. so you're right, the mo- the motivating forces for it can be complex, but just as a, just as a pure moment, just as a, a, a bit of content that made this 46-year-old man watch it about seven times and, 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 yeah, and just, just cried like a little bitch. Um, um, at it. It just, just, I suppose it's the idea that if you fall, will there be anybody there to catch you and, and, he, and he did and they were um, so the fuck you uh, b- b- before I I'd imagine that there are a lot of my listeners or some that would have a certain cynicism about Glastonbury which I, I, I share in some small measure there was a map I don't know if you've seen this Simon but there was a map of the amount of hel- uh, helicopters taking off and landing from the Glastonbury site over the weekend mm. and it was pretty fucking busy it was pretty busy. And and it just made me think about Just Stop Oil as they're continually interrupting the lives of ordinary people trying to go to work, see family and friends, doctors. How about you get yourself and fucking take on some of these celebrities that are taking private jets? I look, I... I don't mind commercial enterprise, but there needs it would be a far more legitimate punching up type target, wouldn't it? To highlight celebrities that on the one hand seem environmentally conscious, but then hopping in private jets and fucking helicopters. Well, I mean, I suppose the obvious um pass would be that it'd be quite difficult to lie at four thousand feet and get in the way of a helicopter. It's it's quite a difficult um, you know, thing to bring down. And of course, part of the package of being wealthy is that you can afford to have security keeping people a long way away from the, you know. Oh, the- I would definitely have all of that. I'd be on the helicopter and I'd have the fucking security and I'd say take no prisoners yeah. I'm t- I'm talking about having a symmetrical moral base in your project the problem with Glastonbury is that it has always set itself up as being uh, yeah a, a moral crusade as much as anything else and they put those big posters up you know the of the globe saying I can't see any borders can you you know like 20 yards away mm. you've got like fences that make you know uh they look like Checkpoint Charlie, don't they? I mean, they're huge kind of barriers, you know, the the, the enforcement of uh, of borders around the Glastonbury Festival itself is an extraordinarily vivid... Well, it... it- it got said over the weekend that that had become like, uh, you know, a thing that people, a lot of people were saying about it. But you're right. You're right in a way, just just the aesthetic of how they looked. Yeah. That was the point. They looked no, so not typically. Just the aesthetic, not just the aesthetic. The reality of the fact that they absolutely commit to keeping people who aren't prepared to pay out. And yet they have the same the attitude that the, the national borders should be just porous and allow anyone who wants to come in to, you know, paddle across the across the channel. That is hypocrisy to me as well, every bit as much as... Mm. as the, the thing about... I mean, you can't expect Guns N' Roses, right? You book Guns N' Roses to come and do your gig, and apparently they were amazing, you know, according to my son and wife, but they haven't, like, spent 30 years, you know, uh, in lockstep with Glastonbury Festival uh, ethics and, and morals about, about saving the planet. They're mm. just rock stars, you know. So they're going to come in on a chopper and they're going to go out on a chopper. And there's a lot of other stars like that. And there's a lot of other wealthy people. But over the last, I mean, what is it, 40, uh, no, uh, more like 50 years, is it, Glastonbury? I don't know, 1971, something like that. It has obviously evolved into a massive corporate enterprise. You know, there's a, you know, it's constantly. Uh, I know people who went this year just said they sold too many tickets, even at the high price that they were. And when you saw most of the acts, I mean, the big names now had a lot of nostalgia around them. You know, uh, yeah, even though it yeah. was obviously uh, fantastic to see Elton there for the first and last time, and it was a wonderful thing to watch even on the iPlayer. But uh, it wasn't like that sense that they were breaking a new band or even, um, you know, recognising who was the current king of the of the hill. Well, sh- you know? Should I just quickly go through, like, the highlights um, on the BBC iPlayer of the Glastonbury that you could watch? Okay, and um, it really it really speaks to the idea of what you're saying. So here's, here's the watchable stuff. Elton John, Arctic Monkeys, Guns N' Roses... Blondie, Manic Street Preachers. I mean, for guys yeah. like you and me, they think, hey, they're a, they're a cool young band. They're not young. Um, Foo Fires, Texas, Cat Stevens, for fuck's sake. Pretenders. This is all stuff that's on the BBC iPad, yeah. right? Candy, Candy Staten, I'll make an exception for her. She's alleged. Uh, Rick Astley, The Lighting Seeds. 
and Queens of the Stone Age. I mean, like that last title there, Queens of the Stone Age, could really describe their <laughs> booking policy, couldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> the Neolithic. Yeah, uh, totally. Uh, and uh, as you say, like Manic Street Preachers probably stand out as a relatively uh, sort of recent topical, still evolving proposition that the rest of them have probably the last five albums have been greatest hits, you know. It's it, yeah. it's a um, it's a reflection of the whole rock industry. It's not entirely their fault. You know, very little is happening. Mm. It's always been more of a rock festival than it is. They could have hip hop stars. They could conceivably have sort of electronic dance music stars or whatever, but... That isn't really who you're going to put on the on the pyramid stage. We wanted to. They've had the Chemical Brothers there. We've, and had, stuff, we've but, had Beyonce, Jay Z, yeah. and Kanye. But I suppose, yeah, they're they're sort of bread and butter as these rock stars. There's definitely a problem with rock music. Is that becoming really well known as a rock band now is hard. And I've often wondered as well if just the cultural compass isn't pointing in that direction. So the things that can make rock bands seem cool is by being a bit entitled, having a bit of swagger. You know, Liam Gallagher, we're all thinking of Liam Gallagher, right? Whether or not there's any appetite for to see four white lads bowl on stage and kick over a drum kit at this moment. I mean, like, I mean, there was, there was a rock and roll band recently that did act a bit like that and they got roundly slated. So that, that I think that's the difficulty, is not just it's very hard to become a household name in the age of um, social media, but also what rock bands used to be it, that as a proposition, it, it seemed maybe maybe it's too cliched, you know, I think that... Well, uh, I don't know if you know David Hepworth, who's a, a rock journalist, used to write for Q Magazine and, and, and The Word and uh, I think Smash Hits before that. It's been in it a long time. He wrote a book called Uncommon People, which is a great read, goes through year by year, identifying the greatest rock star story of that year. You know, it's very interesting and informed account of the era, the age of the rock star. And it goes from 1955, I think Little Richard is his first one, and then Elvis, you know, to 95. And then he says, and at that point, it basically stopped. <laughs> it wasn't possible to be a rock star as we understood it anymore. You know, the the chrome had come off. You know, you could quite easily see straight away what the problems were going to be. And anyone who created a sort of rock star persona after that, had to do it in a sort of tongue-in-cheek way, in the same way that it is still technically mm. possible to wear a fedora, you know, or a or a, a, any kind of male, male yeah. hat with a large brim, you know, like... But you cannot wear it in the same way that Spencer Tracy and Cary Grant wore it. You are now a sort of, you know, you're just a... You're in a costume, you know. You're you're wearing yeah. something that's obviously a little bit ironic and, and, and it either in, indicates you're, you haven't... You know, you haven't understood how you're perceived by the world, or you're you're quite happy to be sort of tongue in cheek and mocking it all, and that's kind of how it is with rock stars now. I'm afraid, you know. And I think possibly, I mean, I don't follow it, but I get that feeling. It's it's gone. It's like spun off the tracks with rap as well. Obviously, obviously, hip hop stars were, you know, a more recent phenomenon, and they spread out. Mm. And again, as I say, it's it's off my off my beat. I think somebody else said on Twitter nowadays. You know, most a lot of rappers look like a, a desk in detention. You know, they're just like screwed all over, you know, with the, yeah. the, the, the tattooing and the this kind of... Uh, the people women. like Post, Post Malone and, yeah. You know, it's, it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's run out of track. They have nowhere to go with it. And this is the problem with rock music. Is it's like, I mean, it's a great music. I've still listened to classic rock, but it's very hard to create something genuinely new now that really, you know, captures people like... You, you're essentially a covers band 90% of the time if you're not careful. Well, there's a sort of it's a it's a sort of end game of playlist mentality, is that because we're all deep diving into exactly what they, we want, and there's there's wonderful things about that, but it does mean that the percentage of people who know what the fuck something is 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 just more niche. I mean, if you look at like big what are called big TV programs in this country, you know, or certainly perceived to be something like Ted Lasso is a good example. I, I've seen like bits of it. It looks like a really you know good fine television program, and it gets a level of coverage among a certain type of person. Um, but what? How many? What percentage of this country has seen Ted Lasso? Even Succession, Succession did well. You know, like it, there was more people that had seen Succession. But what I'm saying, I suppose, Simon, is it's never going to have a Del Boy falling through the bar moment, is no, it? I mean, that is true. <laughs> Succession. I mean, you know, Kendall, Kendall Roy. <laughs> 
<laughs> Kendall Roy, you know, killing a kid in, in a in a four by four is never is never never going to rank with Del Boy and Boise. Uh, no, sorry, Trigger. I um I've been watching Black Mirror, you know, late at night, especially with the family away, and I'm, I'm I've, I think I've seen four of them now. But um, yeah, that, the first two I thought were exceptional. That seems to have sort of caught the zeitgeist, and this thing that everyone's talking about. You think, oh, everyone's seen Black Mirror, so I better see it. Okay, I better watch it. So I've mm. watched four of them, as I say, out of six, I think it is. And even so then, the number of people have said, oh, have you been watching Black Mirror? Thinking, you know, we'll have a conversation about that. And then I, oh, no, yeah. I haven't actually. <laughs> you know, it's like, and that's the thing that's dominated. I mean, that's had like the top third of the Sunday newspapers and stuff, you know, uh, people discussing the issues and and uh, as it lost the plot or as it like lost some of its momentum or it's, it's pith because it's gone to Netflix and all this sort of stuff. You can get a very false impression nowadays. On the one hand, yeah, you never get the Dale Boy falling through the bar moment. You don't get the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show moment. But what you do get, of course, is you do get um, newspapers and commentators latching onto something because they're desperate. They're all we're all desperate to have something to talk about. You know, you you've probably written columns. Uh, I certainly have for like spiked and stuff where they kind of go, can you do something off the back of this? You know? And I think, yeah, off the back of it, but not about it exactly. Do you know what I mean? There's a kind of, you know, yeah, it's yeah, a... Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no, you're right. There's a there's know. a desire to to make it a thing. Yeah. You know, there needs to be those things. But the truth is, is that if you want to talk about TV shows that are watched by large amounts, but it's, it's going to be mostly things with Stephen Mulhern. All right, let's get. I mean, we we we've had a good old chat. So this week doesn't have the usual the usual structure. So let, let's talk about Ben Elton's appearance on Laura Koonsberg. So I mean, so Ben Elton has had this clip go viral from an appearance on Laura Koonsberg where he 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 looked. Climbs into the Prime Minister, right? Now, I generally am comedians union. I'll always just, even if people think that comedians are on the opposite side to me politically, I'll just generally defend every, and I will obviously defend his right to say what he wants. I just thought that what was interesting about this was that it kind of came across as fairly premeditated. Um, his attack on Sunak. So he, he called him a lot of different things, mendacious, a liar. And he sort of said that he, he, even he hoped that the Tories had found come to their senses. And I, I do wonder about that, whether he really hoped that, given he's a lifelong Labour supporter who wants Labour to absolutely obliterate the Tories, I, I, I do wonder a little bit. The thing that I, I, I sort of thought made it seem, and he's claiming it's not premeditated, you know, full disclosure, is when he said that he claimed that uh, Rishi Sunak was as much of a mendacious, narcissistic sociopath as his former boss. I'm just going to go, really? <laughs> Boris Johnson. I mean, he real is a real fucking Hall of Famer in that respect mm. and, and has put in years of service to the cause of mendacity, narcissism and sociopathy, if that's what it's called. <laughs> so I, I just, you know, when Joe Lysett went on, the way that he presented his, his views on um, Liz Truss, I thought were quite well done and I thought it was funny. I just thought with this, I, I don't know. I don't know. It, it, it just seemed like a, a, a sort of, Hit piece. Now I talk as somebody. We've both been on on political shows, but you just you you want to buy a bit of space for your opinion by seeming even a little bit objective, right? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I'm trying to work out what order to say what I want to say about that. Um, Sorry, okay. I went. I went, no, okay. I went on a. I went on a fucking <laughs> brand there, didn't I? <laughs> First thing I would say is I think it's probably a mistake that they have comedians on and ask them their opinions at all. I didn't really enjoy Joe Lysett's contribution a few months ago. I wrote a column about that, funny enough, for Spite. There's a clacky example of something <laughs> off the back of that. And I did because I think it derails things. The fact that he that you were trying to have a political discussion programme and probably for a lot of people, uh, not for comedians who have all day at home, you know, and are desperately sort of crawling through the media trying to find things to write topical material about or whatever. But a lot of people, that's probably a major catch up for them on Sunday morning, the old Andrew Marr show, which mm. he took over. And instead, comedians will derail it and you don't get a chance to really sort of discuss as anything of value been said there. You know, you need people who are able to tease out the meaning, um, you know, that might be. Uh, like to some extent cloaked in the language of political uh, propaganda or discourse or whatever, um, instead of just attacking it all as a tissue of lies. I've got plenty of friends who do that, you know, who will just say, oh, they're all just as bad as each other and they're all just like, it's all a load of hot air. 
But it's always easy, isn't it, to say that about anyone. I'm sure anyone yeah. who was so inclined to say so could say it about Keir Starmer. They could have said it about Jeremy Corbyn. They could say they're worse it about than absolute, the last yeah. lot. Every, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. They don't say anything. They're asked a question. They don't come up with any. Just trust me. We'll get you out of this. Well, you got us into it. And I mean, obviously, that is a problem the the Tories have now. You know, Sunak has been a member of the government for some time. But, I mean, he was created, um, I don't know exactly when he was created Chancellor, but the first time I was really aware of him was after the 2019 general election, which Boris Johnson obviously won with a huge majority. They were looking forward to, they created a, a mini budget immediately off the back of that, which was intended to reassure the Red Wall that they were committed to a what amounted, to, in my view, to a pretty socialist sort of policy and programme. Yeah, know. high spending, <laughs> exactly. yeah. And then before they knew it, they were just like, uh, you know, sucker punched by the by, by the coronavirus. And um, we've all been living through that and the aftermath of that ever since, you know. So I, that's the first thing I'd say about, you know, Ben Elton attacking Rishi Sunak as having been, as if he, he said, as, as if been sort of born, this yes, and sort of suddenly popped up, you know, materialised into the middle of all this and hadn't been responsible for any of it. Well, I don't think he has been that responsible for a lot of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Inflation has almost certainly been caused by the massive quantitative easing over the last 10 years, as well as obviously the amount of furlough and everything that came out and, and just generally sort of mm -hmm. back up in the money supply that was caused to some extent by supply chain um, collapse and so on. You know, there's an awful lot. The truth is all politicians, I think, have a kind of fantasy as they get further and further up and they get promoted through the ranks that at one point, maybe chance, maybe as prime minister, they'll be shown into a room where they finally you know, given the levers of power and they can actually do something, you know, to change the world. Yeah, yeah. And it never happens. It just never happens. You never get there, you know. Even at the most powerful, uh, a modern day a, a, a prime minister operating in a constitutional monarchy does not have the amount of leverage, the amount of control over events and about, you know, it's, it, it's or, or indeed the president of America. You know, they don't have the, the level the of control that, that people assume they do. The only time I can really remember it happening in my lifetime this, in this country is 97 when Blair came in. Every, you know, inflation yeah. was down, the economy was growing, we were on the, the point of the tech boom, you know, the internet bubble. People forget about the, the, the dot-com bubble, right? You know, that, that drove a lot uh, up, up well, towards the... Well, a lot of people would say... The, a, a lot of people would say that uh, Tony Blair's like honeymoon period, which was substantial, whether despite or enhanced by Diana's death, which was obviously the big sort of, uh, you know, the strange mm. cultural uh, hinge point, um, was 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 beginning to win by Ken Clark, who was a fantastic chancellor for for John Major and right. put 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 the economy into probably the best shape it's been in in my lifetime. I mean, you know, and, and to be fair to him, he he didn't foul it up either. You know, Gordon Brown had his own program and agenda, but they didn't, you know, misuse it exactly. They used it for the purposes they wanted to achieve. But I will just say in, you know, just for off off your initial uh kind of summary, yeah, I didn't like what Ben Elton said because I don't think she's soon as mendacious. I certainly don't think he's a narcissist. The word narcissist is often used as a simple synonym for, you know, fancies himself a bit, but it's not. It's a it's a serious psychological uh, assessment. It's a <laughs> yeah. it's a you know, it's a it's a it's a proper um you know, it's 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 adopting quasi scientific language to make yourself sound fancy, but really, he's just sort of going. He, he thinks he's all that, but he's not. You know, narcissism is is a serious thing to have. You know, one of the things that Sunak got stick for was that he was unwilling on Saturday to call what was happening in Russia a coup, and because it wasn't, no. and it didn't turn out to be. But, I mean, literally, people going, this spineless prick, we can see what's <laughs> happening here. You go, but, like, like, what is the benefit? None of the NATO partners, nobody, you know, in senior sort of leadership positions across the West at that point was calling it a coup. And and I guess what it comes to is, is accumulated contempt for the Tories, right, which, you know, a lot of it will come from legitimate reasons. But it's created a style of person but it's just so furious about the Conservatives all the time. And we see a lot of internet accounts that have several hundred thousand followers and literally in their bios basically say, follow me if you want someone that will wake up and just slag off a Tory, right? <laughs> there's, an, there's a fucking huge audience for it. But the problem with those people 
is that I just don't know if I can be asked to listen to them because there's, there's at least, look, I have my bias, but I'll at least try and sound objective from time to time. Whereas I just don't think Get the Tories Out is in itself a political objective or an end game. No. You know, it's a feeling. No, it is. I mean, I understand the weariness if, if you do. I mean, I think politics has always been tribal. Everyone says nowadays social media has made it. It's always been tribal. I think I think human beings are tribal, you know, and I think an awful lot of our problems yeah, yeah. are our failure to recognise that. But the... You know the the, the 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 span of of Tory rule, you know, since the since the financial crash now it has has stretched out, and I think an awful lot of traditional tribal Tories have felt very disappointed as well with the lack of any kind of um, you know force being brought to bear on the on the on the on the social progressive agenda set by Blair as well. You know, there there is a real sense that it's been a wasted opportunity, and obviously Brexit has been a big part of that. You know, we were all promised a lot. And I think that is, that's, again, you know, whether not to say Brexit was good or bad, but more to say it wasn't going to change things as much as people thought it would. You know, these things never do. You know, mm. it's like you think if I just cut that that one rope, if I just cleave that one chain, if I can just smash that manacle off my ankle, I will be able to, you know, and it's and it goes and you're like, oh, I still seem to be stuck on this sandbank. You know, it's <laughs> just how we all are, you know, so... Yeah, I totally understand why Labour supporters are just desperate to see a change, and I, I am sorry mm. that they are also almost inevitably going to be disappointed by that as well. <laughs> well, I do think the thing is with the Labour proposition as it is, I, you know, I used to say, well, I'm, I can't wait for a whole new generation to be disappointed by a Labour government. At least last time, it took about seven years before that <laughs> happened. This time, they almost seem to have managed it before they've taken office. I saw that there was there was <laughs> there was another fucking U-turn. I was, oh, there won't be enough money for that. I thought, come on. Man, we all know that part of the Labour offer is to say there won't be enough money for that, and we don't care. We're going to spend it anyway. That's what's fun about Labour, right? We're just going to be fucking spunking money like a divorcee at a strip club. <laughs> very possibly, very possibly. Yeah, I mean, we have weird definitions now. People talk endlessly about austerity. You know, the austerity years, which apparently stretch from about two thousand and nine right up to Brexit and caused Brexit. There was no austerity. You know, we were co- the uh, the very minimal definition of austerity is that you should be spending less than you're taking, right? You, you <laughs> like the government should be like in negative deficit. The deficit maybe got reduced, but it never went into a surplus, not mm. once. You know, so the, the idea, you know, that whole frame has just been moved so far to the left now that you know we can't really have that conversation. One of the things that people point to is like what was the level of government debt when uh, the coalition came to power and what is it now? So it's a lot higher now. Yeah. But then I kind of go, well, the implication there is that austerity should have been a lot more savage and immediate than, than, it, than it actually than it actually yeah. was. And, and, and so much has been forgotten. And you're right, this is just what happens over 13 years, is that Labour were not promising to spend like dramatically more on the NHS in 2010, nor in 2015. You know, it was basically, what was it, a diet austerity or austerity light. So the idea that there was these junctions in time where, every, as you say, everything could have been like, like a, a dr- dramatically different. I think that, you know, from, you know, just for a bit of sort of personal balance. I do think in 2015, given that money was cheap and stuff, maybe the Tories could have loosened things a, a little bit yeah. there. I think that that was a point. They'd seen that um, what was called austerity polled well and they just thought, fuck it, we'll lean, we'll lean further into that. But I actually think that they perhaps, they did overcook it at that point. But it wasn't like the opposition at that point. And then your next option was fucking Jeremy Corbyn in 2017 and then 2019 promising pandemic level spending before we'd had a fucking pandemic. I mean, so again, all these junctions where I guess the left have hypothetical moral certainty that there's this sliding doors moment where every single time they took the right option. I guess that's one of the great benefits of losing is, is you never stress test <laughs> your, your decisions. Well, that is a, a widely held suspicion, isn't it? That Labour purists, you know, tendency prefer to be in opposition so that they can they can sort of fantasise about what they would have done differently, you know. I can't wait for the Tories to lose an election. Can you, can you believe I'm going to get to punch up? Uh, this is going to be so much fun. Like people, am I going to be disappointed? No, because one, we're going to have a Labour government that will be a bit Tory, but then I get to strut around with my chest puffed out saying that I'm punching up on the government. I'm kicking back against the establishment. Br- fucking bring it on. Bring it on. 
We're just going to do a quick hype here. Um, my book is out uh, mid-September, The British Bloke Decoded. And um, I've got a little note here that says, read a bit from it, Jeff. And I haven't got it uh, in front of me. That's the kind of organisation. But but what they've done right, what I can say is that, that we're going through the process of typesetting it, how it's going to be laid out. It looks fucking amazing. To have a team of people that are just taking what you've written and just, just improving it by where they put things on a page and little icons and images. It, it's a it's, it's a good looking book. And so please do judge this book um, by its cover is what I'm asking. Uh, 2024 dates. Uh, a lot of people are saying to me that uh, the, uh, the date that they wanted in 2023 is sold out, which is true of a lot of them now. Here's the thing. Just keep scrolling. Um, I know it's, it's this thing that you can do on the internet now is just go down. So when it gets to the end of 2023, just scroll a bit more. And then what happens is another year uh, happened. There was somebody that said to me like, Oh, I couldn't, you know, when they contact you, I couldn't see them. I go, look, if you haven't mastered scrolling, maybe don't fucking come to the shows. How about that? Um, just a quick hype um, from yourself. You've got, I know that you are, I saw that you're adding dates and stuff. You're going to be out on tour later this year. Tell us some of the places. Yeah, you're going. oh God, I don't know the names of them. They're going to be releasing the dates very soon. But I mean, I suppose the easiest thing is to have a look at my Twitter account, the Simon Evans, or just Google my name, Simon Evans. The, the website's called the Simon Evans as well. The dates will be out there soon. It's a new show called um, Have We Met? And it is about things like memory and mind playing tricks with you, as well as uh, the kind of um, the importance, I suppose, of of making authentic connections. It's it's I, I, it's, it's going to be an interesting show because my last tour, uh, the work of the devil, was on on the road for nearly four years, uh, all told. Obviously, on and off mm. throughout the pandemic and everything, and it's quite a while since I wrote new material. And I feel like I've um, I feel like I sort of closed the chapter with the work of the devil because it had quite a lot of um, sort of heavy like revelations about uh, you know who I was and where I come from and stuff mm. that I'd learned. And, it, and it evolved as well because when I saw it in Edinburgh it was also keeping up to date with topical yeah. things and a whole you know real period of time in British cultural yeah. history so I'm sort of going back to basics a little bit I suppose with this and sort of um, trying to create a, not a new persona exactly but there's sort of there's always a thing where a certain amount of ice forms on the surface you know and you have to constantly be breaking it and cracking it to sort of stay make sure you're not just pantomiming an earlier version of yourself and i think that's what what this is going to become uh, that's going to be the, the purpose of this one so there are dates in the autumn and hopefully at some point there'll be dates in the spring but they're not for sale yet but i think in the next 24 48 hours they'll be announced um so yeah if you just Google i, I totally i totally know what you mean about not not doing an impression of yourself there was a bit when i was writing uh this show where I'd made a note like could do with the routine about sex here. <laughs> I thought that's not that's not a basis on which you need stand up always goes that something just comes into your mind from fucking nowhere and that's what that's how you should write it. And then you suddenly realise with these guys that play arenas and stuff, you know, obviously I would envy the, the money and all that sort of stuff, but the pressure they must have to think, fuck, I need a big bit there, I need a bit that they can all shout something back to there, you know, to to deliver. Uh, a more rounded um, arena experience. So, so God bless those those millionaires in the uh, arenas and the pressures that they face. Just one last story we're going to do quickly here. So obviously, you know, any regular listeners will know my love of cricket. There has been this report uh, that has landed um, about institutional racism, sexism, and all forms of bigotry in cricket. Like I say, I'm not involved enough in the game, you know, at club level or stuff to know how true this is, how accurate, you know, but it seems that it's quite wide-ranging report. The bit I want to focus on is that among the criticisms is about the pay differential between male cricketers and female cricketers. And they highlight stats of that the female cricketers earn just over 20% of what the male cricketers earn and the captains of women's team own, earn just over have 30 something percent of the resources I mean it is really difficult to discuss this when you talk about pay gap women I mean those are the headline figures and you go all right where do you go next here it it's just about surely it's just about demand for a thing right and the women's game has come on leaps and bounds and I'm sure that those percentages will close the gap over time but when I, you know, when I was on um, backstage with Catherine Ryan, I never thought. I mean, one, her name was in the title of the show. There's just simply fucking loads more demand to see Catherine Ryan than me. I know that. I don't need to have that explained to me. But it does seem to be quite sticky with sport. The idea that that perhaps. You know, like the Women's Premier League is a good example. It's doing well, you know, but if you look at the actual amount of people that pay to go and see it, you know, the the, the league, the gates are in line with sort of like a League Two club, you know. I know that some games like the Lionesses, some games have really smashed it, you know, like the Women's World Cup final in cricket. You know, there are some games that even with television audience 
happily compete. But on an ongoing basis, the demand is different. So is it, I don't know, like, am I off the pace here? Do you just have to increase the pay to improve the sport or, or does it have to be earned in terms of demand? Well, I mean, you can imagine you're not going to get a very different analysis from me. I don't even watch men's sport that much. But from what I understand, I don't know. I personally don't know any women who are remotely interested in cricket. And that will probably bring a sort of flood of uh, complaints to your show as well. Email in what most people think UK at gmail.com. Female cricket fans who listen to the show. I mean, I think the point is it is entertainment. And for that reason, for instance, the you probably saw recently there was a, uh, a game, uh, an American soccer game, as they would call it, uh, between the, the World Cup winning side, famous... Um, you know the uh, I don't know what they're not called lionesses, obviously, but the uh, you know they're they're um, they're uh, very highly hyped American women's international yeah. team played Wrexham, uh, the uh, British I think second or maybe third tier side. They recently got promoted. Right. And I, I think that it wasn't. It was some of them had retired yeah. as well. So because so apparently yeah. Wrexham are owned by a couple of is it Ryan Reynolds and his mate or something. Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. Yeah. So yeah. they sort of set it up because they had this kind of connection with America. And anyway, obviously, predictably enough, Wrexham won by like an absurdly like by like twelve, 12 nil. nil. Yeah. Think, so yeah. there you have it. And yet, despite that, I suspect those women's American side because they're an entertainment proposition probably have been paid or re- you know reasonably remunerated at certain matches. Probably at least. Mm. As well as Wrexham have, you know. So, I mean, it's 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 horribly visible as soon as you put them up against each other. You know, Serena Williams, you know, mm. acknowledged that she was probably be about two hundredth in the men's rankings. This isn't like an arrogant chauvinist observation because I'm no good at sport. I wouldn't stand a chance. I wouldn't get a point against Serena Williams. I'm well aware of that. Nor would I ever have done in my yeah. entire life. You know. I'm not taking any great credit for being part of the master sex or anything, but you know, you just have to recognize. I mean, it should be said that there have there have been sort of trouble. There have been some quite funny uh, surveys that have suggested there are a deluded group of blokes that do think it's about fifteen percent. You know what that was think they could take a, a game off Serena. No, but I saw that survey and I found it very interesting the way that was framed and publicised at the time. They were like, "Oh my God, look at these men who think they they could get a point off Serena Williams." One point. Well, I think I think it was a game. I think it was a okay. game. I think. If it was think, a game, then that's yeah. a significant more like a higher bar than a point but even though regardless mm. roughly half the number of women polled also thought they could get a point or a game or whatever it was off serena williams oh, really? oh, half okay. now there is no way that half as many women would as men that's that is the reality yeah, because yeah, there's something yeah, like one in 20 women could be um, do you know what I mean? That's that's where the, the, the yes, yeah, no, no. I I, I get yeah. It's so just it's just as arresting as a stat. Yeah. Deluded about how they would match up against Serena than the men were, but they presented it entirely as a deluded. That, that is. That's excellent context. I mean, it's like it's like there's that thing about how many men think they could su- successfully beat a bear in yeah. a fight. There's always going to be some. And a lot of them are taking the piss or... anyway. Yeah, of course I could have a bear. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I mean, I mean, just I mean, I know it's like, like it would be discovered, but when it comes to which level of animal you think you could beat in a fight, I think it's surprisingly low. Just because I reckon you get down to a badger that's got something to live for. I had to pull a large Leon burger, I think it was called, a huge dog, like a sort of more vicious version of a Newfoundland, Mm. off my own dog recently because it had got away from its owner and gone from him, and it was bloody terrifying, you know. I mean, that's Mm. the closest I've actually come to actually fighting another animal in the last 10 years. I had it by by the ruff of its neck, you know, and it was like... I had a fight with a staffy once, and uh, and I would say I prevailed, but it, maybe you had found the similar thing: is that the it didn't want to fight me; it wanted to kill my yeah, dog, basically. Yeah. So I got the staffy. I had to prize open its jaw and stuff, and it was such. It's one of my proudest moments. I mean, I just take any fucking opportunity to tell yeah, the story. Well done. And uh, well, and what then happened afterwards? I would have like these other little yappy fucking dogs running up and challenging me, and I was just thinking. Do you not have you not heard what happened to the staffy? Like I, I, would, I would have thought it would, I would have thought it would have gone out, got out in the near, in the local dog community. But I mean, just just go, going back to the women's sport thing, I suppose it's not even like you know. Obviously, there's the speed, agility, and all the physical things that make sport good to watch. But obviously, tennis, tennis, you know, is far more equal because there's aesthetic elements to that sport 
that clearly appeal to people. It's not just that women's sport has to be fast. It's just that the demand has to exist. The moment the demand exists, like yeah. so Ronda Rousey, who's the best paid person in w, uh, UFC, they asked her this question, uh, the same question, you know, should women just be paid more? And she said, well, you know, like the, the, the head of the UFC, Dana something or other, he didn't pay me that like as a favour to the ladies or as a progressive move. He paid me that because that is what I'm fucking yeah, worth. Yeah, exactly, because otherwise she'll take the, the next best offer, you know, and go somewhere else. That's how it's got to work. I think women did support some of the teams, some of the international tournaments and stuff because they got a bit excited, but it's got to be sustained. If, if the sustained interest is there, then, yeah, the pay will rise and it will draw more people into it. But, you know, it's a little bit like different sporting codes now. I think there's some suspicion that one of the reasons West Indian cricket isn't what it was is because a lot of those guys go off and uh, get picked up for, for baseball, you know, where there's just more money mm. in, in that continent, you know. And um, it's, it, you know, it's it's always the market that's working these things out. And you get right back to Glastonbury again, you know, it's who is going to sell tickets, who's mm. going to pull, you know, there's there's been a row about whether the gender divide in Glastonbury acts was, was unacceptable, you know, and... Um, I mean, I just think if they if there were better acts, they would they would probably get. I think you know when it comes to women's sport, the funny thing is, a lot of the people I know who watch it live on telly or listen to it on radio are mates of mine that moan about women's sport, but watch it. Right. <laughs> that yeah. is an incredibly, yeah, to go. Oh, it's fucking ridiculous, but but they still work because they love sport, right? And then the people that I know that talk about sport, uh, women's sport, in a sort of moral. Uh, way often women like the idea of it that don't watch it so if you could just fucking merge those two there things. are some things there are some sports where i think you, you can only judge how good it is by by the other people that are, you know are competing at the same time like i've always thought it would be an interesting experiment if you had a the 100 meters sprint final in the olympic games you had seven finalists one regular bloke maybe even like a reasonably fit bloke mm. you know running alongside them so you could see just how fast they are because all you can tell is, oh, he's shaved off two tenths of a second. You're a yeah, baby, yeah, just yeah. like ahead. And, yeah. and it's just almost impossible. And it's the same with football to some extent. If you watch an entire women's uh, football world tournament, you know, they're all, you know, yeah. you might see Egypt playing Australia and you might go, Egypt are better than Australia. But you have it's quite hard to tell how much better Man United would be than Egypt. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's, <laughs> you might just get destroyed. Yeah, we need we need to CGI yeah, in. Yeah, uh, yeah. That, I, I would genuinely love to see that with the hundred yeah. meters. I, th I think just a, just a fat bloke, yeah. you know, not fat, just a, da a dad bod, just me, basically me at the hundred meters final, and then the the comic delay of yeah. watching the actual <laughs> athletes pass, and then he's still not in vision. He's still not in. Oh, we could just see him there. Oh, he's passed out on the finishing line. What a sad end. Get the medical team. Get the medical team on the pitch. Um, right, we're just going to finish up here with... Uh, um, I put it out to my board members that we had you on, and there was a, a couple of questions. We have, we, have, um, we have covered this a bit regarding Glastonbury, but... Um, one of the board members, oh, fuck, I forgot their name. So sorry about this. Oh, I think it's Matty. I think it's Matty M. Um, or might not be. Um, with the cost of living crisis mooted hourly by the media, just how off kilter did the scenes at Glastonbury look? So much middle class spending and consumerism on display. It almost seemed like a celebration of expensive merch with every crowd shot. I suppose the, the thing that I've got, maybe has, has Glastonbury come a culture war thing where there's people that... Just fucking don't lie. I mean, I've been in this camp over the years. It's not, it's not somewhere I've ever, ever, ever wanted to go. But is there now a point where, like like loads of things, where the same debate comes around every year and there'll be a group of people that say, Lastonbury is the best of us. And a lot of people who just think, oh, it's just middle-class fucking hypocritical wankers. And and, and and so like your cultural position def determines how you feel about the festival. Well, I certainly don't think many working class people to some to the extent that such people, you know, still exist in the old fashioned sense have any issue with it. It, it feels like it's a tiny handful of vociferous, you know, unpleasant types who, who think that Glastonbury is unacceptably middle class. The same sort of people who think that hummus is still some sort of middle class shibboleth, you know. You, Even though it's in exactly, the Tesco everyone everyone yeah. nowadays, you know. <laughs> Honestly, I have no problem with people um, spending their, their money how they want. I think probably one or two mm. people um, uh, might might have felt that it was it was un distasteful or whatever. But um, oh, I don't. I honestly just cannot see how can you like live like that if 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 you're just like. If you if you resent people going to a three day festival to see their favourite bands, it was a gloriously sunny weekend. Sometimes the, the rain spoils these things, but it was fantastic. All of the bands 
played well. I don't think anyone, you know, took the piss. Nobody sort of came on, phoned it in, and, and went home. From what I understand, all the acts yeah. were great. I didn't see a huge display of consumerism. I saw a lot of people in the Pumarid stage holding their banners up, you know, and holding their flags and and like, yeah, maybe they were a little bit more middle-aged, but I I refuse to play this oh, middle class as any kind of pejorative. Middle classes are what countries need. You should fucking try living in a country that doesn't have a middle class for five minutes and see what it's like when you live in a hollowed-out society where it goes straight from the peasant class to the aristocracy. That is the fucking dystopia <laughs> that a lot of people are living in. That's 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 the problem. The middle class knit the country together and get things done. I'm not I'm not gonna have it being used as a slur. I'm sorry. Well, no, I mean, listen, I have been at the vanguard of using it as an insult, but that's only because self-loathing, because I am middle class and there's a part of me that feels feels appalled at, the, you know, the, you know, the kind there of food no, I eat. There and, are and no I working. I mean, there's people, there's poor, you know, they're still poor, but very few people really have yeah. to scrub hard to get the dirt from under their nails when they come home this evening, you know. Listen, Simon, uh, always a pleasure to have you back on the podcast, mate. I should uh, uh, remind people of the title of your show again, your tour, which is going on so shortly. Have we met? That's the title. Picture of me looking like I do now in the middle with loads of older posters from previous shows arranged all around it as if it's an old wall in a student union room or something, you know, uh, like... uh, I mean, look, I've I've always... uh, I've, you know, I saw your last show at Edinburgh. It's absolutely fantastic. Thanks, so this one is going to smash it out of the park too. So do buy um, um, tickets for that. And uh, Simon Evans, thanks again uh, for being on what most people thanks think. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolute pleasure. <laughs>